How can we find freedom? Freedom is a, one of those buzzwords right now that could encapsulate any number of situations in our world. What does freedom look like if you live in Afghanistan? What does freedom look like for someone in eastern Ukraine? What, is, what does freedom look like for a Canadian? What does freedom look like for a North Korean? Freedom. Harriet Tubman was an African-American slave that escaped her owners and moved into Canada where, of course, there was freedom. And then she began a, a campaign of, of helping other slaves escape. And she developed this thing we call the Underground Railroad. And she had all these safe houses. It was a very elaborate you know, map and a way of getting slaves out of Maryland into Canada, the, the place of freedom. I'm very proud that we, we provided that for her. But sometimes the slaves would get a little bit nervous, right, and want to go back, right? And, and it's said that she actually had a gun one time, and, and she, you know, threatened these slaves, and she would say, you'll be free or die. Because, you know, for them to go back, it would expose and, you know, potentially put a bunch of people at risk. And so, so she was a serious, serious woman, uh, at least 70, that was a, a small, up to 300 people that she led from slavery to freedom. You'll be free or die. It's interesting, the story that we find ourselves today is that story of the Passover. It's the final plague of, of Egypt before the Israelites leave their enslavement and move into their freedom. You see, God created us, I believe, for freedom. And, and of course, what does that freedom mean? What does that freedom look like? Think about that. You woke up this morning. What would freedom be in image in your mind if you were to think of freedom? You know, for some people, it might be the absence of, of bills or responsibilities. Freedom as a child for me was June when the end, school ended, right? And finally, you didn't have to go back to school. And that, that was freedom. Uh, freedom, freedom might mean, you know, moving out from your parents' house onto your own as, as, a, as a young adult, right? Or, or freedom might be watching your kids move out of your home, right? I mean, who knows, right? Freedom can, can be anything. Freedom is maybe you finishing your last day of work before you retire. I don't know what freedom looks like for you. We sell products like Freedom 55, uh, this elusive goal that somehow would, would give you this incredible liberation for the rest of your life, potentially. But what does the Bible describe as freedom? You see, freedom in the Bible goes deeper than the external realities of our life, but it, it, it's, it's, this, it's this peace from the internal conflict of your soul. Because you might get to Freedom 55, have all your debts paid, have a nice vacation property, have, you know, an exercise regime, have, a, you know, a, a convertible BMW, whatever it is, but get in that car and, and your, your heart says, I'm not free yet. You may have the marriage, the children, the grandchildren, all these things that are, are supposedly supposed to promise you freedom, and, and then you, yet you, you say, you know, that's... that's I love it, it's great, it's a blessing, but I'm not free because there's something inside that, that screams to be free. And God created us to experience freedom, but it comes in a relationship with him. The Garden of Eden was a place of incredible freedom. There was one boundary, a tree that they were not supposed to touch or eat from. 
they're not supposed to eat from. Eve said, even if we touch it, we'll, we'll die. But that wasn't true. But I mean, there was, there was freedom, but just respect my boundaries, God says. And that's the way the relationship works. But as, as, as humans, we are rebellious and we want it our way. And we think freedom is the absence of rules. I don't know if you've ever lived in a place like that. You know, if you've ever shared a room, uh, you know, a room or a apartment with, with someone where there's no rules, I mean, after a while, you're like, this, this is disgusting. No one's doing the dishes. No one's cleaning the bathroom. No one's washing laundry. No one's doing anything. Everyone's living a free life. There's all sorts of stuff around. You're like, this isn't freedom. Freedom is us knowing who's responsible for what. Us taking our turn. Us helping each other. Us serving each other. That's freedom. God's people have lived for 400 years in, in Egypt. And finally, God sends Moses in there. He's 80 years old. His brother is 83. And these two men come to the greatest man of the known day, Pharaoh of Egypt, and say, yeah, let my people go. Pharaoh's been building these, uh, these impressive building projects on slave labor, and he's like, you're asking me to get rid of my slave labor? Forget it. Who are you talking about? What kind of God? Who's this Lord? I don't know this guy. Get lost, basically, is what Pharaoh says to, to Moses. And then he makes it tough. He's like, okay, we've been given straw for these Choose to make bricks. Don't give them straw. You go get your own straw. So now, but keep making the same amount of bricks. And the, and the people get really mad at Moses. He's like, what are you doing? You said you're going to set us free, and now it's getting worse. Remember what like I said last week? Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And now God's going to teach his children, the Israelites, his firstborn, he calls them, my, my special children, and the Egyptians, and most of all, Pharaoh, who he is. A series of plagues ensues, which, of course, the final one is the plague of the, the, of the Passover celebration. But just before we, let, let's just talk about these plagues, right? So the first one is the Nile turns to blood. The Nile was the lifeline of Egypt. In agrarian society, it irrigated the, the farms nearby. It was the source of life. It was worshipped. There was a god associated with the Nile, and they turn the Nile to blood. All these fish start floating. Alligators start dying. It would be just absolutely vile and disgusting. That's what it says. It, it reeked, and it was, you know, there it was. And, but Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same thing. And so the second plague, God sends these frogs. And they worship this frog god, which was this goddess of fertility and and now the frogs are just everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And finally, you know, God relents and, and these frogs all die and there's heaps, piles of dead frogs all over Egypt. And then Pharaoh says, oh, forget it, you, you can't go. And, and so God sends another plague. He sends gnats, tiny little no that, you know, nibble at your skin and just get into everything. And they're just covering the whole area. And, you know, and, and, you know, and God relents and, you know, but the problem with the gnats is, you see, the frogs, the Egyptian magicians were able to make frogs too. And, and, but then when it comes to the gnats, they try and they try and they try. And then they come back to Pharaoh and says, this is the finger of God, <laughs> of Yahweh. Because like, we can't do this. So this is beyond our power. We've reached our maximum and now we're seeing something that we have no idea where this came from. Except for the, the God of this man who is talking to you, Moses. Follows up with flies. Now, each of these different plagues could be associated with a god that the Egyptians served and worshipped. But the thing about the plague of the flies is that the flies are all in Egypt, in Egypt. But you see, there was this ghetto called Goshen where all the Jews lived, the Israelites. And it's like the flies came right to a, a wall and they just stopped, boom. 
You know, there's the Israelites standing on the side, you know, watching this flies. Like, there ain't no flies on us. <laughs> Might be some flies on some of you guys, you know. And, and so it's like God makes a distinct, distinction. It's all the Egyptians are like, man, it flies. But they're looking over there like, man, there's no flies over there. God is teaching his children. He follows up with a, um, a plague, a disease of the animals. And all these animals start dying. It's like mad cow disease in, in Egypt, right? Just there's animals falling over everywhere. But you look into the fields where the, where in the ghetto where, where they've got their sheep and their cattle and they're still munching away happily. All these flies over here, you know, and now all these animals dead over here. Animals happy over here. And you're like, what's going on here? God is teaching his children and the, and the Egyptians who Am I? I control the water. I control the dust, which turns into gnats. I got to control the flies, the frogs, the disease. This Pharaoh's not getting it, though. He keeps just stubbornly refusing to let these people go. And you can read it in your own time, but I'm just kind of moving forward because the 10th the plague is, is the big one that we want to focus on today. Finally, he takes this dust and throws it in the air and spreads across the land, and the Egyptians are covered in boils. Just a horrific, horrific plague where you're just itchy, scratchy. The magicians couldn't even come into Pharaoh's presence because they're all covered in these festering boils, you know, pussing, and just, just, a, just vile, just as gross as you can imagine. The Net Bible would say the lesson of this plague is that Yahweh has absolute control over the physical health of the people. Is that still true today? As Christians, if, if that's still true, that, that really does change the way we approach things that happen in our world. You know, we talk about how do we get here and, and how do we find freedom, but if God can control that and, and, and is sovereign over that, that then, then we can trust him in the midst of, of whatever is going on around us. Physical suffering consequence of sin and it comes to all regardless of their position and status so even the richest people are getting boils it's not like a poor person or a you know a homeless person or you know the under the poverty line people everyone and God sends his hail this hail is it coming and he warns them this hail is coming so my advice is get your animals out of the field and into the barn because it's coming. And what's interesting is a bunch of Egyptians, it says, those who feared the word of the Lord took their animals and brought them inside, the Egyptians. They're like, man, when this God speaks, it actually happens. We've seen it now multiple times. He's like, get your animals inside. So they bring their animals inside and the hail hits. Some of them didn't, however, boom, and just smatters everything and kills all the animals in the field, or, you know, most of them. Some of you have experienced hail here. We experienced hail down. We lived in southern Alberta. Like, it's, it's destructive. Like, it just decimated our city there and, like, siding, roofs, even windows were smashed, cars utterly destroyed. I mean, but this is even worse than that. It's like lightning and hail, you know, and so it's just blasting. And it's like, okay, are, are we going to listen? This God is serious. He's not just playing anymore. He's trying to communicate to the, to the most powerful person in the world at the time, 
Pharaoh, that, that there is someone more powerful, more sovereign, more majestic than him. It says then, uh, God sends in these locusts. So whatever's left after the hailstorm, the locusts just munch up. There's nothing left. If you ever had a garden get hailed on, you know, it's just sometimes things kind of come up after they can survive, but, but whatever was recovering, boom, gone. The locusts come through. And even in the 1800s, they documented locust swarms that were like kilometers wide and, and deep. Just these huge black swarms that, that moved across the Middle East. So, so, I mean, this happened, right? And then finally, um, there's this darkness. Number nine, this plague of darkness. And for three days, there's nothing except, again, in Egypt, it's dark, but then suddenly you hit the line into the ghetto and all of a sudden there's light over here. And you're like, what's the difference? How come there's light here and there's darkness here? God's trying to communicate to them. They're not listening. Pharaoh's not listening. Which brings us to the, the final plague. Chapter 11. And verses 4 is where we're going to start of Exodus. It says, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There will be a great cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But against any of the Israelites, not even a dog will bark against the people or animals so that you may know that the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. All these, your servants, will come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Then Moses went out from Pharaoh in great anger. The Lord said to Moses in verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not release the Israelites from his land. This was it. He had warned back in chapter 7, this is what's going to happen. And now he's saying again, look, look something's going to happen here. We'll find out that this judgment is actually universal. Every home will be affected. The firstborn will die in every home except except unless you follow the directions of God's word. He makes provision for the judgment to fall on a substitute. Here's what it says, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the be your beginning of months. It will be your first month of the year. I'm changing the calendar here. This is going to mark the new beginning right now. Tell the whole community of Israel, on the 10th day of this month, they must each take a lamb for themselves, according to their families, a lamb for each household. If any household is too small for a lamb, the man and his next door neighbor are to take a lamb, according to the number of people. You will make your, your count for the lamb according to how much each one can eat. Your lamb must be perfect. A male, one year old, you may take it from sheep or from the goats, you must care for it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole community of Israel will kill it around sundown. So listen carefully, people. This is how it works. Judgment's coming. But I'm making a provision for 
you. You can choose to trust me or you can choose to handle this however you like. But I'm telling you, this is the way it's going down. If you want to avoid the judgment that will fall upon everyone else, I am making a provision for a substitute, but it must be a perfect substitute. A male lamb without blemish, without defect. Don't pick the one that's got scours, right? You know what I'm saying, right? You know, don't pick the one with droopy nose, you know, nose dripping and you know, leg gimpy, you know, blind eye. Don't, no, 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 perfect lamb. Count the number of people, you know, yeah, you know, you got a bunch of teenagers, okay, you need a big fat one, you know, a couple of old people, small lamb, you know, whatever it is, you know, pick one, because you're going to eat the whole thing. Plan, if, if, you know, just two of you, okay, have the neighbors over and share lamb together, but this is a communal meal, and you're going to sacrifice that lamb. It says in verse 7, they will take some of the blood and put it on the two sides posts on the top of the doorframe of the houses where they will eat it. What God is introducing for the Israelites is this major principle that will be reverberated throughout the Old Testament and right to the time of Christ. Substitutionary atonement. The death of one in the place of another is possible way to appease God's justice. God's holiness. You see, sin demands death, but someone, something else can die in place of your sin so that your sin will be covered by the substitute of, of another. You see, this plague was a reminder to the Israelites and to the Egyptians that God is the owner of all life. He has the priority of ownership of your life and of mine. He gives life. He takes life. It is in his hands alone, not in Pharaoh's hands, not in the God of the sun, not in the God of the Nile, not in the God of the frog, not in the God of the locust, whatever God you might. He, God is the one who owns life. In chapter 13, you'll see he's got this whole idea of every firstborn needs to be redeemed. Why? Because it's a reminder to everyone in the Israelite community that God is the one who gives life. We owe our lives to him because he gave it to us. You will not be taught that in your school, in your local community club, in your neighborhood pub. They won't, they'll tell you, you are the owner and master of your life. And what you do with it is your own business. And everyone else should just mind their own business. And they probably would say it in more colorful language, of course, right? But the Bible says, no, no, God owns your life. And God speaks to the Israelites here and says, you know what? Every life counts, every life matters, every life is accountable, but I will allow for this judgment to, 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 to pass over this judgment if another life is offered in place of that life. And so the faithful, those that had learned by this point to trust in the word of the Lord, went and found a lamb, carefully inspected the whole flock to make sure they got the best one. And they killed it. The blood poured, and they caught the blood. Some of you are hunters or farmers. This is normal, but many of you are, are, are not used to blood. It, it, you know, if you're new to the church, maybe you're watching this online. I mean, sometimes we sing about blood. You're like, what, what kind of people are these talking about blood all the time? But see, the life was in the blood. That blood represented the, represent the life of that lamb. And they took that blood and applied it 
to the door frames. I've got a picture here. Here's, here's the first one. There these two guys are. They've taken the hyssop branches. You see the, the, the lamb lying on the ground. I know it's a bit morbid, but I just, I, so you realize, like, yeah, something died here. A judgment essentially was passed on to the animal, and here they are. They're just obeying the word of the Lord. Yes, yes, I, I, God told me to do this. Does this make sense? It doesn't make sense. Here's another picture. There's the blood. Interesting, they've done some archaeological um, you know, discoveries in this place called Armana, and they discovered that the, the Egyptians actually would, the rich aristocratic ones, would actually paint their names over top on the sides, and, and it, was, it was a sign of ownership. This is who owns this house. So you'd have these hieroglyphs on top of the, you know, and this is, this is the house of Alexander, or whatever it is, right? So, so here... The blood is a reminder. Who, who owns this house? Who, who owns the people inside of this house? God owns them. It says in, we'll continue the story here, verse, verse 8. They will eat the meat the same night. They will eat it roasted over fire with bread made without yeast and with bitter herbs. Do not eat it raw <laughs> or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, its legs, and its entrails. You must leave nothing until the morning, but must burn with fire whatever remains of it until morning. This is how you are to eat it, dressed to travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why in haste? I mean, this is like the bachelor's meal, right? Just and go, right? That's the, you know, before I got married, you know, I used to just eat and run, you know, and then I got married and Lisa made a beautiful meal and we'd sit down to the meal and I'd be like, you know, and all right, we're done, let's go. And she's like, man, I just spent an hour laboring on this lovely meal and you inhaled it in two minutes, you know, and I'm like, okay, I got to slow down. Got to enjoy it. You got to just take your time, you know, maybe, maybe throw in a few words between bites, you know, and just try to figure this out, right? But here, like, Eat it like you're ready to run. You know, when you go to someone's house and, and you come into, you know, and you're, they've invited you over, you don't keep your boots on and your jacket on and your mitts on and your scarf on and, and just sit at the table. I mean, I mean, no, you take off your jacket, you take off your shoes, you take off your scarf, you take off your gloves. You sit down, you enjoy the meal together, but God's like, this one is a bit different because you're getting ready to go. And the fact that you got your staff on in your hand and you got your shoes on your feet and the bags are packed, you are fully expecting that at the end of this night you're going to be on the road. God is moving you to freedom. It says in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt in the same night and I will attack all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of humans and of animals and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute Judgment. I am the Lord. This was God's signature moment with the life of the, of the Egyptians and the Israelites. Who is God? I am God. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, so that when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and this plague will not fall on you to destroy you when I attack the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day will become a memorial for you and you will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You will celebrate it perpetually as a lasting ordinance. This is the defining moment now, the ultimate defining moment for the nation of Israel, the Passover, where you trust me, you paint the door, you're waiting and you're, 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 
it's the, it's the gateway to freedom. But notice that it comes at the price of a lamb. A substitute is offered. A substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice, a life is given for my life. He says in verse 21, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and told them, go and select for yourselves a lamb or a young goat for your families and kill the Passover animals. Take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and apply it to the top of the doorframe and to the two posts on side, uh, some of the blood that is in the basin. None of you, not one of you, is to go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike Egypt. And when he sees the blood on top of the doorframe and the two side posts, then the Lord will pass over the door and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You must observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. When you enter land that the Lord will give you, just as he said, you must observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then you will say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover when he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, when he struck Egypt and delivered our households. Then the people bowed down low to the ground, and the Israelites went away and did exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And listen, it happened at midnight. The Lord attacked all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the prison to all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh got up in the night along with his servants and all of Egypt, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was no house in which there was not someone dead. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the, in the night and said, Get up, get out from among my people, both you and the Israelites. Go serve the Lord as you have requested. Also take your flocks and your herds just as you have requested and leave but bless me also. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing that Pharaoh adds at the end there. But it happened exactly as God said it would happen. You close the door and you eat the lamb. If you live close to the border, you probably heard the sound of wailing as families woke up to realize that people had passed away in their homes. A horrific plague. But God provided a way out of that plague. If you, if you trusted in his provision and followed his word by faith and doing what, as he told you to do, you would be spared. The angel, the destroyer, would pass over your home. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says this. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so we, we're moving towards the cross here. Easter. And Jesus is referred to as our Passover lamb. <clears throat> so what does that mean? That means when you believe in Jesus Christ by faith, just as the Israelites did, and you count on his sacrifice on your behalf, it's like God looks down on you in judgment but doesn't see your sins. He sees the blood of Christ. And he passes over you because the judgment has now fallen upon his son. Christ bore your penalty in his body on the cross. And so we celebrate communion as, as an extension of the Passover. Jesus would, would sit with his disciples on the Passover and says, you know, like, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, which is for you. You know, you know this is for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, he's like, look, guys, I'm fulfilling what was, what, what was foreshadowed years ago, the defining moment for Israel, the Passover. Now I am your defining moment. Will you accept my provision? And in eating the bread and drinking the cup, you are acknowledging, yes, I 
am under the protective covering of Jesus Christ. And I belong to him. And I'm now walking in the, the freedom that only Jesus can bring. All those Egyptian gods didn't bring freedom. They actually brought bondage. But the God of gods, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the Lord, is the only one who could provide freedom. And Christ himself is the Lord. And he is the pathway for you and I to experience freedom. If you're looking for freedom anywhere else, I promise you, you'll be disappointed. But when you discover the freedom of Christ, all the other stuff in life, those matters that drag other people down won't drag you down because you have something that stands above it. You know, like the early Christians, right, were, were, were imprisoned, thrown into the wild beasts, I mean, treated very poorly, but they just kept moving on with Jesus. And, and the, you know, the Romans were like, I guess go get these Christians. I mean, the more we kill them, the more they're, they're devoted to Jesus. Why, why, why? Because they had freedom of the soul. You could wrap them in chains and throw them to beasts and hang them up and light them on fire. It didn't matter because they had the freedom of the soul. Peace with God. The knowledge that Christ was their true source of righteousness. Do you have that freedom today? Because if you do, I'm inviting you to join me and this congregation as we celebrate communion together. It's the freedom for the forgiveness of sins. It means you're trusting in what God did for you alone. Now notice, they couldn't, they couldn't you know, freelance it or go maverick here. Oh, I want to sacrifice something else. I want to paint something else. I want to put the blood over here on the gate of the, of the barn. No, no, no. It, you need to follow God's directions. There is one way to salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. And so I invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your sins, you've come to him this morning, You've put it all, you've acknowledged whatever you need to acknowledge from this past week. And you come to him and say, you know, I, I blew it, but because of Christ, I'm forgiven today. And I'm just, I'm recalibrating. I'm reminding that this is who I am. I belong to you. My life is, is in your hands. And I entrust what I have to you, Lord. And would you use what I have for, for your glory? And so here, here I am. Use me. This is what, as communion happens, we're, we're just essentially saying, I don't own myself. You own me. I don't believe in myself. I believe in you. I cannot save myself. Christ has saved me. And it came through a bloody death, a substitutionary atonement. Christ died for me and for you. I can't die for my own sins because I'm imperfect, but the perfect one. John the Baptist would call him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect Son of God died for us. And so we're going to partake in communion today. And we've been doing this, so I'm going to invite you to come and receive the elements. We have a couple of guys that will serve the bread. There is also a gluten-free option. Just got to ask for it. If you're not able to get up or you're not comfortable getting up, that's fine. Actually, I have Henry who will be just circulating. You just got to raise your hand, make eye contact with him. He'll bring you the elements to you where you're seated, and he will serve you there. But I invite you to come forward and receive and, and pick up the, the cup and the bread and return to your seat and we'll partake together. This is what defines us. 
Every year the Israelites were supposed to, to gather with their staff, with their shoes on, with the roasted lamb, and eat and remind, yeah, we're free. You know why we're free? Because we don't deserve to be free because Yahweh freed us. God freed us. This is who we are. We're not here because we worked our way out of, free, out of slavery. He brought us out of slavery. We can never dig ourselves out of the hole of our own sin. But Christ crawled into the hole for us and pushed us out so that we could be free. We celebrate that freedom today. So in an unconventional way, I, I've picked a song that kind of describes um, you know, this reality of just knowing your sins are forgiven. What, what it means to walk in freedom. So as we come forward, it's gonna, this song will be playing, and, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll get it real quick as you hear it, but this is our, our song of freedom. And then after we've partaken together, the, the worship team will, will lead us in, in a final song. But um, just invite the men to come forward, and then you can prepare your hearts. I'm going to pray as, as we come to the communion table, and uh, would you just uh, join me as we just uh, calibrate our, our hearts to prepare to partake in communion together. Lord, we confess our sins to you now. the thoughts we had this last week, the things we shouldn't have done, the things you wanted us to do that we didn't do, the poor treatment of others, the refusal to trust, but the worry that we carried, moments of anxiety, of fear, bad habits. Lord, we confess those now. And we claim your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us now. Sprinkle us clean, O Lord, because of the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Purify us that we may partake in communion together, knowing that we are forgiven and stand in your sight, unblemished because of the righteousness of Christ which has been applied to us. And so now we come, we move forward and we, we, we receive these elements in faith, knowing that you have given us the freedom that we could never provide ourselves. And so we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask you to come up the side and then just come back down the center, okay? And uh, we'll be playing this song. Someday in our new church, we'll have a choir like that, I think. <laughs> Sometimes communion is very somber, but there is something about freedom that is a happy thing. Just knowing that you don't have chains on you anymore. There's no rap sheet that's hanging over your head. God looks on you and says, yeah, you're my child. You're forgiven. Come to the table. Full rights, full privileges, full inheritance because of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he gave thanks. Would you join me as we give thanks for the bread? Thank you, Lord, for this bread, which is a reminder of the body of Jesus Christ, which for us was a substitutionary sacrifice of atonement. He became sin for us. The judgment we deserve fell upon him. And the freedom we enjoy is because he took our place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in your name.
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ together. The same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Say with me, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Let's partake of the cup. Team, would you lead us in a song of response as we remember what Christ did for us?
in the freedom that only Christ can bring. And may you bring that freedom to your school, to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your home, to everyone that you meet. May they see that you walk in the freedom of Christ. Go as his children, the children of God today. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, God bless you. Encourage one another as we go, as we look forward to that day.